1: The True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival will be held on August 25th through the 27th, 2023 in Austin, Texas. Join other ethical true crime podcasters, victim advocates, and paranormal creators for a weekend full of panels, roundtables, and live shows. Purchase your early bird tickets now at truecrimepodcastfestival.com slash tickets. Thank you to the following patrons who've been with us since the beginning and to our new patrons. We will be doing patron shoutouts every time we get a new person joining the Patreon community that we've established. So thank you to Sammy Q, Kim M, Lisa Ann D, Joyce L, Charlie, Angela L, and J, Linda C, Amy C, Manda, Joe A. W, The Inkling Girl, All Crime No Cattle, Matt H., Lynn C, Marco S., Robin W, from The Trail and Cold, Lucky Jean, Nancy P. Christy from Canadian True Crime, Megan Moe, Sam S., Justin Ruff, Mary Virginia, Olivia F., my friends True Crime All the Time, Jessica Y., and the Generation Y podcast. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. You've probably heard of a Ponzi scheme before, right? Even if you haven't heard the exact phrase, it's bound to have crossed your path somehow. Netflix and YouTube are absolutely teeming with documentaries on the topic, and some schemes have even made it to the big screen. It was even mentioned in passing in the massively popular British historical drama Downton Abbey, for what it's worth. A Ponzi scheme is a scam, a con, a way to swindle money out of people to line your own pockets. And although it didn't receive its current name until the 1920s, It's a method of illicit money-making so old that it features in several books by Charles Dickens. But what exactly is a Ponzi scheme? The easiest way to explain that might be just to look into its namesake, one Charles Ponzi, or to give his full name, Carlo Pietro Giovanni Guglielmo Tabaldo Ponzi. But first, let's look into probably the most infamous Ponzi scheme carried out in recent years, You might not have heard of Charles Ponzi, but I bet you've heard of Bernie Madoff. Okay, on to the show. Bernard Lawrence Madoff was born in New York City on April 29, 1938, the middle of three children, His parents, Sylvia and Ralph, had immigrated to the U.S. from Eastern Europe before starting their family. Both parents apparently worked in stockbroking, though some speculate that Sylvia herself did not do any trading, and Ralph had registered a company in her name for tax avoidance reasons. Either way, Sylvia was pressured into closing her business by the Securities and Exchange Commission in 1963, after failing to file financial reports. It seems likely that Bernie wanted to follow in his parents' footsteps career-wise, although his schooling history doesn't necessarily reflect that. After graduating from Far Rockaway High School in 1956, he started his higher education with the University of Alabama before transferring to Hofstra University back in New York, where he graduated with a bachelor's degree in political science in 1960. Fresh from graduation, Bernie spent a short time as a sprinkler salesman, and an even shorter time studying at Brooklyn Law School, leaving to found his own business less than a year after his time at Hofstra. He did so with $5,000 of his own savings, as well as a support from Saul Alburn, his father-in-law, whose daughter, Ruth, Bernie had married in 1959. He ran his company out of Saul's accounting firm, located in Manhattan. He, imaginatively, named his business Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities, and arguably spent his first couple of decades running the company, actually doing his job. He was a market maker, aiming to match stock buyers and sellers, particularly those too small to be listed on the larger exchange. It was something you could only really make a living off of if you had good instincts as a trader, according to the New York Times. It was something you could only really make a living off of if you had good instincts as a trader, according to New York Times reporter Diana Henriquez. And it looks like Bernie did a decent enough job to keep going. But that wasn't enough for Bernie. By 1962, he was managing money for clients, initially just friends or associates from Bernie and Saul Alpern's social and business circles. Saul's business partner Frank Avellino also funneled investments to Bernie. His investors consistently made great returns, and Bernie's own wealth grew and grew as he did so. In 1983, he was doing so well that he easily opened an office in London, owned a penthouse in Manhattan, multiple homes and mansions, private yachts, and even a private jet. Bernie's business moved with the times, and his firm was celebrated as being one of the first firms to specialize in share-dealing done via electronic records and computers, rather than paper and phone calls. His personality certainly didn't hurt his progress. He was often described as friendly and all-around nice guy, with enough respect from those around him that he only went from strength to strength. By the 90s, Bernie had well and truly made it. He was one of the highest-salaried men on Wall Street, and the best at what he did when it came to the NASDAQ electronic stock market. And then, the recession hit in the 1990s. According to Bernie, this is when he started to dabble in fraud. He claimed, The country was in a recession, and this posed a problem for investments in the securities markets. While I never promised a specific rate of return to any client, I felt compelled to satisfy my client's expectations at any cost but the authorities are not so sure that this was when Bernie's scheming really began. Whether you believe it or not depends on whether you take Bernie's word over that of his longtime employee, Frank DePascali, who reportedly told the courts that Bernie's scheme had started much earlier. During that time, Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities was situated in the Lipstick Building in Manhattan. The lipstick building, officially named 885 Third Avenue, is a well-known skyscraper in New York City. It gained fame for its unique design, resembling a colossal lipstick tube. Interestingly, Bernie Madoff, known for his fraudulent activities, officially operated his business on two floors of the building while owning three. Unbeknownst to the employees on the legitimate floors, The business dealings carried out on the closed-off third floor were highly illegitimate. The employees on the third floor weren't many, but they were both trusted and ridiculously well-paid to carry out their duties, creating fake documentation which included confirmations of share purchases and trading, as well as client account statements so that nobody would realize they were missing huge amounts of capital. You see, Bernie Madoff wasn't making investments. He wasn't selling shares. He was barefaced, lying to every one of his clients who trusted him at his word, because he just seemed like a caring, kind man, almost like an uncle with financial know-how, whose word was always good. Nobody truly understood what he was doing, but they were willing to be complacent as long as they were making money. They trusted the men who advised them, like Bernie Madoff. And what was Bernie Madoff doing? Using investors' money to pay off other investors' investments, according to the return that he arbitrarily decided upon each month. It should have been suspicious to those in the business, or tasked with regulating such businesses, that Bernie never lost any money and was able to guarantee consistent high returns. You know that phrase, if it's too good to be true, it probably is? Now, it shouldn't have been possible for him to achieve that. Even his two sons, who he brought into work with the company on the legitimate floors, of course, had no idea how he managed to do it. And when pressed, he would describe a complex system that involved matching buy-slash-sell options that made little sense to them. In fact, it was suspicious to those he dealt with. Though this information did not emerge until much later, it is now known that several major banks and hedge funds doubted Bernie Madoff's legitimacy, but made no mention of it because it was benefiting both parties. Go figure. The Securities and Exchange Commission, or the SEC, should have caught Bernie in his lies on at least three occasions. The first occurred in 1992 when two of his accountants promised a staggering 20% yearly return to their clients and snagged the SEC's attention with their unbelievably high numbers. Two accountants who, for what it's worth, had made $440 million for Bernie over the last 30 years. But the SEC didn't look all too hard at the kindly Bernie's business, and any suspicion quickly passed. The second occasion arose in 2001, when financial and trade publications questioned the legitimacy of Bernie's business dealings, especially as he managed billions of dollars' worth of investments, despite not being registered as an investment advisor. Naturally, the SEC didn't take action this time either. Oh, and the third occasion? In 2005, financial analyst Harry Markopolos sent the SEC a report describing in detail how it was impossible for Bernie to be achieving the returns he did without engaging in some kind of fraud. He cited his own analysis as well as conversations he had with numerous other experts in the field, all of whom came to the same conclusion, that it simply wasn't possible. He had first voiced these concerns to the SEC back in 1999 before any doubt over Bernie's methods was publicized. After being asked to reverse-engineer Bernie's trades by colleague Frank Casey, Markopoulos went to Casey with the words, This is a Ponzi scheme. The market goes down. He's not hurt at all. He produces 1%. Market goes up. He produces 1%. He reported the exact same data to the SEC, only to be ignored. And in 2005... Again, he was ignored. The SEC shrugging off his analysis due to Bernie's reputation, believing he was too well-known, successful, and widely respected to be a fraudster. That's never happened before, ever. Bernie, in turn, claimed that the experts consulted by Markopoulos and Markopoulos himself simply didn't understand his complex secret system of business and acquiring high returns. Of course. All these years, Bernie got off scot free, using his investors' money to fund his own lavish lifestyle, and his kindly, successful reputation to draw in even more investments. And then, in September 2008, the Lehman Brothers bank collapsed. This terrified investors across the board, and the world over. People started taking out their money before it could fall victim to another crash. This included the investors of Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities, who withdrew their funds so rapidly that the business had to pay out $6 billion by the start of December, and the withdrawals were still coming, while Bernie's bank was already empty. There was no way for him to recover. The money was gone.
2: Si tienes ciertas afecciones crónicas como enfermedad cardíaca, asma, diabetes y tienes 19 años o más, 52, 36, 42. pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar20 en Español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar20.
1: At this point, Bernie knew it was the end. He told his brother and both his sons, all of whom worked in the company alongside him, that everything they knew was just one big lie, and that he had been running one giant Ponzi scheme for decades. Although he claimed he was going to turn himself in, his sons Mark and Andrew decided to phone the FBI themselves. There was no plausible deniability for their father's scheme, and they would have gone down with him if they hadn't contacted authorities. To his merit, Bernie shouldered the entire blame, claiming that he himself was the only wrongdoer in the company, that he had been behind the scheme since the get-go, and though he meant to stop once the recession in the 90s wound down, he had continued out of sheer greed. Apparently, he was astonished the SEC had never caught him earlier, an astonishment that I'm pretty sure we can all share, considering they had investigated him a total of eight times, but never once checked whether or not he was actually carrying out any trades. Once upon a time, the SEC held the responsibility of regulating and overseeing the securities industry in the United States. But there's a puzzling question that lingers in the shadows. How did the SEC fail to uncover the web of deception spun by Bernie Madoff? The SEC found itself shackled by limited resources and burdened by budget constraints. With insufficient staffing and funding, the commission was forced to prioritize cases, inadvertently diverting attention away from Madoff's operations. It was a fatal flaw in a complex game of cat and mouse. And then there were whispers of a different nature. Critics emerged, claiming conflicts of interest and regulatory capture tainted the SEC's oversight. Madoff's influence and connections within the financial industry cast shadows of doubt. So, was the SEC compromised? The Madoff scandal ignited a period of soul-searching within the SEC. It served as a wake-up call, demanding improved regulatory oversight a boost in resources, and a proactive approach to detecting financial fraud. Reforms were enacted, fortifying the SEC's enforcement capabilities and sharpening their focus on unraveling complex financial schemes. Now, the time of reckoning for Bernie was coming. Bernie Madoff pleaded guilty to fraud, and in June 2009 was sentenced to 150 years in prison. He contracted kidney disease and died in prison in 2021 aged 82, having only served 11 years of that sentence. He was only survived by his wife, Ruth, who claimed to have never been aware of the Ponzi scheme her husband was running right under her nose. Tragically, both of his sons had already passed away. Mark took his life two years to the day after his father's arrest, and Andrew passed away from cancer in 2014. Bernie had carried out one of the greatest frauds in history, Involving an estimated 65 billion US dollars, including money that clients thought they had gained due to the fraudulent statements they were provided with. There was a total of more than 17 billion dollars in cash losses, but at least 14 billion of that was able to be recovered. Clients included a number of charities, celebrities such as actor Kevin Bacon and Baseball Hall of Famer Cindy Koufax. UK banks, one of which lost around $1 billion, and innumerable innocent members of the public, many of whom lost their life savings and retirement funds, and were left devastated and destitute. Due to the global reach the scheme had, there were losses worldwide, including $4 billion from Swiss investors and $3 billion from Spain. So, that was a lot to take in, right? Lots of numbers and percentages and names and dates. Now, I can't promise the next part will be much easier to parse, but hopefully you'll be able to follow along. Bernie Madoff was by no means the only fraudster to operate in such a way, and we're going to go back in time a century or so with our next con man. Let's talk about the one, the only, the original, Charles Ponzi. Charles Ponzi was born on March thirty first, 1882, in the northern Italian town of Lugo. His family originated from the larger city of Parma in the same region and had at the time been very wealthy. But this was a distant memory by the time Charles came into the picture. Little is known about Charles's childhood, but it seems that his family pressed on him the importance of returning them to their previous status of wealth and easy living throughout his young life. He got a job as a postal worker for a time before being accepted into the University of Rome. Though, what he studied is unclear, especially seeing as he never achieved a degree. According to Charles himself, he was a spendthrift, living a lifestyle where, quote, I had arrived at the precarious period in a young man's life, when spending money seemed the most attractive thing on earth. His social circle consisted of other students, many of whom were very wealthy and attending the university with little care for their actual studies. They didn't need to worry about their futures or livelihoods, thanks to the generational wealth they had access to. As such, they spent a great amount of time at bars and attending shows at the opera. Charles, wanting to be a part of the rich crowd that his ancestors had belonged to, followed his wealthy friends wherever they went, spending all of his money in the process and failing academically due to neglecting his studies to focus more on his social life. But this didn't discourage Charles from chasing his aspirations of wealth. It was pretty common at the time for young Italian men to migrate to the USA, later returning to their families in their home country significantly better off financially than when they left. Charles began to consider following this path himself, and his parents eagerly encouraged him. This was their chance to be restored to the position of wealth they believed they were owed. So with his family's hopes and dreams behind him Charles boarded the SS Vancouver and set his sights on Boston Massachusetts By the time he reached the Boston Harbor on November 15th 1903 he had gambled away almost all of his life savings and was left with only $2.50 to his name which is roughly 75 or so dollars in today's money or as Charles put it himself 250 in cash and 1 million in hopes Charles worked all across the East Coast, doing low-paying, unskilled jobs such as painting signs in Florida and dishwashing and waiting tables in New York, quickly learning English as he went. His employment tended to be terminated when he was found to be committing theft or cheating customers out of their money. He moved further north, settling in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, and securing a position as an assistant teller in a new bank called Banco Zarosi. He was perfect for the position since the bank catered to Italian immigrants, and he spoke English, Italian, and French. Funnily enough, he was also perfectly suited for the job because his employer, Luigi Zarosi, was running a scam. He drew customers to his bank with a promise of paying 6% interest on deposits, which was roughly double the rate offered by other banks. What these customers didn't know, however, was that Zerosi was using their money to pay off his own debts from real estate loans. Charles only became aware of this mismanagement when he attained the rank of bank manager and was eventually left to deal with the aftermath when Banco Zerosi failed and its owner fled to Mexico with most of its money. At this point, Charles was helping Zerosi's now abandoned family and trying to raise enough money to return to the USA. Perhaps in searching for employment so that he would be able to do exactly that, he walked into the offices for Canadian Warehousing, a previous customer of Banco Sorosi. Strangely, the offices were empty at this time, and instead of leaving to return another day or waiting for someone to arrive, Charles found himself a checkbook and promptly forged himself a check for $423.58. Apparently, he wasn't exactly subtle in spending it, because he was soon questioned by police about the large amount of money he was suddenly in possession of. He admitted his guilt to the authorities and spent three years at St. Vincent de Paul Penitentiary on the edge of Montreal. However, he wasn't as forthcoming with his family at home in Italy, telling them via letter that he was working as a special assistant to a prison warden to explain away the curious postage details of the communication. After his release in 1911, Charles only made it to the U.S.-Canadian border before he got caught up in another scheme, this time smuggling illegal Italian immigrants across the board. This landed him in an Atlanta, Georgia prison, where he ingratiated himself with the warden by translating letters sent by a mobster named Ignacio Lupo, whom Charles later befriended. This stint in prison was a bad influence on Charles as he also befriended fellow prisoner Charles Morse, who was known for conning people in and around his career as a businessman and speculator. After release from this prison, Charles worked as a nurse for a couple of mining camps in Boston. During his time there, another camp nurse suffered severe burns, and Charles volunteered to undertake an operation and donate 122 square inches of skin from his back and legs to help her which ended up losing him his job due to the complications he suffered. Perhaps burned on by everything he had experienced thus far, Charles was desperate to figure out some way to get rich and quick. In 1917, he once more found himself in Boston after responding to a newspaper ad placed by J.R. Poole, a merchandise broker looking for a clerk. Charles didn't last long in that particular employment, as Poole quickly realized that Charles wasn't exactly qualified for the position. Or, as Smithsonian Magazine words it, Poole failed to recognize his new client's latent financial genius. But by this point, Charles was already moving on. While on a streetcar in the city, he had met Rose Necco, a beautiful young Italian immigrant woman who was smitten by the older man who would become her suitor and in February 1918, her husband. Charles' next form of employment was taking over his father-in-law's small grocery stall, which he reportedly made a complete mess out of. It was then that Charles was struck with his own brilliance and applied to the Hanover Trust Company bank for a loan of $2,000. His idea was to create an international trade journal, which he believed would make a substantial profit through advertising space but the bank didn't feel as optimistically about the idea and denied his request. But what Charles himself didn't even know was that this inkling of an idea would still lead to his rocketing up the leagues in the world of finance, as well as his own crash-landing into infamy. According to Charles, he received a letter from a business correspondent in Spain who had been interested in the aforementioned trade journal, And with this letter came an international postal reply coupon. This was a way of prepaying reply postage for international correspondence. You bought a reply coupon in your local post office in Spain. It cost 30 centavos and sent it to your recipient who exchanged it for their local equivalent, which in the U.S. is a postage stamp for five cents. And although these prices were fixed by international treaty, they didn't account for the fluctuation of various economies changing the real value of the stamps. Spain's economy was faring relatively poorly compared to that of the USA, and as such, the Spanish peseta had fallen in value in relation to the dollar. Therefore, it was possible for someone who bought a postal reply coupon in Spain to redeem it in the U.S. for roughly a 10% profit. And this became Charles's biggest big idea purchasing large quantities of reply coupons in countries with weaker economies and exchanging them for a profit in countries with stronger currencies. He started using contacts in his homeland, Italy, to test out the idea. And it made him a decent enough profit. Okay, maybe you're a little confused right now. And that's probably what Charles was relying on when he started up his new business. The securities exchange company and started promoting it to anyone who would listen in December 1919. You see, scammers will often rely on people not understanding or being confused by their methods. That way, they're more likely to accept that the scammer just knows what they're talking about, and they themselves aren't smart enough to grasp it. Even if something can technically turn profits, such as trading in reply coupons. Only it shouldn't be able to make as much as it purportedly does. People will look away from that as long as it benefits them. Ignorance is bliss, whether it's willful or honest. And it worked. Charles claimed to have had networks all through Europe that were buying him the coupons and that he was in some secretive, genius-level intellect financial dealings, turning these coupons into massive amounts of cash. He drew people in by offering investors huge returns of 50% interest, firstly over the period of 90 days, then later cutting that time down to 45 days. That's doubling the initial investment within three months. Obviously, he explained, he couldn't detail exactly how he achieved this. Otherwise, everyone would start doing it, and he didn't want to compete in that sort of market. In reality, though, Charles Ponzi was doing nothing of the sort. But we'll get to that. Business absolutely exploded for Charles. At one point, he had offices in several states across New England and was inundated with offers from people who wanted to be partners. He hired sales agents underneath him who would do most of the actual pitching to prospective investors and would receive a 10% commission on every investment. These agents would often recruit sub-agents to work under them, who would each receive a 5% commission for new investors. If anyone is hearing this, wondering, hey, isn't that a pyramid scheme or an MLM? Yes. Yes, it is. And no, I do not want to be invited to yours. And a total of around 40,000 people were suckered into it. But Charles was fine with that. People were getting the returns they wanted and even reinvesting rather than withdrawing their initial investments. And more to the point, he was living the kind of life he had always wanted, in a 12-room mansion with servants, several cars, high-end fashion, and jewelry for him and his wife. Not to mention even more opportunities to make even more money. He had stock in banks, purchased properties across Boston, and even arranged a takeover of the same bank that had rejected his loan application only a year earlier, the Hanover Trust. Just months after launching this business, literal lines of people hoping to invest with Charles would wait outside of his office in downtown Boston on a daily basis. Six mounted policemen would have to handle the crowds, while 14 officers inside the building would keep the lines in the corridor orderly. According to CNN, at his peak, he was making $250,000 per day. That is $3.7 million in today's money. Then, in July of 1920, a lawsuit was launched against Charles by Joseph Daniels, a furniture salesman who claimed an old debt owed to him by Charles, gave him rights to a share of the fortune he now owned. Daniels had given Charles furniture, which he could not afford to pay back. The suit was for an incredible $1 million, the equivalent of over $15 million in today's money. And, understandably, this brought considerable outside attention to Charles's door. Remarkably, despite his apparent financial wizardry, Charles Ponzi had never been featured in any newspapers, but the Boston Post was about to change that. The city's most prominent newspaper at the time, The Post ran a rags-to-riches story on Charles on its front page on July 24th, the headline reading, Doubles the money within three months, 50% interest paid in 45 days by Ponzi, has thousands of investors. In this article, it speculated that Charles was worth around $8.5 million. Clarence Barron, who owned the Wall Street Journal, was brought in as a consultant, and he had particular issues with Charles' claims. He calculated that to make the amount of money he needed to offer the returns he did and keep his business afloat. Charles would need to be moving roughly 160 million coupons from country to country. And this was simply impossible, as only 27,000 total reply coupons were circulating in the world. And the Postal Service were bemused, as they reported there was no sign of a huge flow of the coupons being exchanged. Barron also questioned why Charles would want to invest money outside of his own business. It didn't make any sense that someone who could guarantee a 50% profit for investments would put his money into boring, normal investing methods that would only make him 5% at a time. Real estate, stocks, bonds. Why would he not trust his own money-making capabilities? As a result... Well, the this-makes-no-sense part went over a lot of heads, and people only saw the 50% interest bit. On Monday, July 26, presumably the first day of business to take place after the article was published, hundreds of more people who had never heard of this Ponzi guy until now clamored to invest with him. Charles later wrote of that day that, A huge line of investors, four abreast, stretched from the City Hall Annex through City Hall Avenue and School Street to the entrance of the Niles Building up stairways along the corridors all the way to my office. He also humbly referred to himself as the Wizard who could turn a pauper into a millionaire overnight. In a rather funny turn of events less than a week later, the U.S. Post Office Department announced a change in conversion rates for international postal reply coupons, something which had not happened since before the First World War. They insisted that Charles' newfound fame had nothing to do with this change, and were adamant that what he claimed to be doing was impossible. And they weren't lying. Postal and legal authorities had been attempting to look into Charles's dealing for months, but couldn't find any damning evidence of any wrongdoing. Enter the editors of the Boston Post, suspicious enough of the information they had collected on this financial wizard that they launched their own investigation into his business. Day after day, their front page continued to host pieces that implicitly questioned the legitimacy of Charles. In an attempt to sweep this bad publicity under the rug on July twenty-six. Charles offered to open his books to a government auditor. He also stopped taking new investments until the audit had been finished. When news that the doors were being closed, albeit temporarily, hit investors, thousands of people turned up at Charles' office to redeem their investment vouchers and get their initial investments back. His clerks were instructed to refund each and every one of them, so long as they provided a valid voucher something the Post reported cost him over a million dollars in a single day. But Charles was too cool to be phased by this. He just said that they had saved him money because they only got a refund for their investment. Therefore, he did not have to pay any interest. As the days went on, Charles became less cooperative with authorities. Though he had opened his books willingly, he refused to discuss the details of his secret business dealings, saying, I do not tell it to anyone. Let the United States find it out if they can. A challenge that, as you might imagine, the United States would take personally. At the same time, he was apparently committed to looking out for his investors. While people queued in the summer heat to get their refunds, he ordered sandwiches and coffee for them and directed that the women present should get priority in the line, being moved to the front after getting reports that some had fainted. Perhaps because of these good-faith gestures, many of the people in the queue changed their minds about the refunds, convincing themselves that Charles had never failed them before, that it would all pay off in the end. But the Boston Post was not done. On August 2nd, they published an article that included a copyrighted first-person report from William McMasters, Charles' publicist. McMasters revealed that his client was over $2 million in debt, which came closer to $4.5 million when accounting for interest. Charles denied these claims, threatening to sue McMasters in the paper, but the damage was already done. Charles still didn't give up, though. His charisma and charm had pulled him through bad situations before, and he wasn't going to stop trying now. He gave a public address on August 10th, which had been intended as a battle royale with mind-reader Joseph Duninger who wanted to pick the brains of the renowned financial genius, but ended up a Q&A session with Charles when the spectators were utterly captivated by him. During this impromptu talk, he even implied that the foreign governments were directly involved in the trade of the reply coupons, and that they would never admit his business was possible because it would betray their interest. The next day, the post revealed what had been buried information up until that very moment that Charles Ponzi had a criminal history and had been imprisoned in Canada for check forgery. Not exactly a good look for someone in charge of so many people's money. And the day after that, the government auditor who had been examining the books for Charles's business, Edwin Price, concluded his report. Charles was $3 million in debt, a number Pride later revised to be $7 million. Following this, regulators raided the offices of Charles's business. They found no evidence that he was trading a huge quantity of postal reply coupons. In fact, there were no more than $61 worth of the coupons in the entirety of the company's assets. And just like that, after eight months in business and an estimated $15 million pocketed, it was over. In August 1920, Charles was arrested for mail fraud, and the government brought 86 federal charges against him. He made a deal, pleading guilty so he would receive a light sentence for his crimes, one that only totaled five years, a sentence that feels almost insulting when you consider that investors lost $20 million, or $225 million today, and no less than six banks crashed in the aftermath of his arrest. Investors were paid less than 30 cents on the dollar. So, what was he doing all those months while he was pretending to work magic on the international postage coupon stage? Something far more simple. Initially, he pulled in as many investors as possible by offering impossibly high profits, and by doing that, he was able to use the money he took from newer investors to pay off the older investors. And in the case of investors who chose to reinvest their earnings rather than withdraw them, he didn't need to pay them at all. That's it. That's a Ponzi scheme. Modern schemes, such as the one run by Bernie Madoff, might involve more complex terms and convoluted reasoning to muddy the waters of any investigation that may occur. But they all boil down to the same thing. Person A invests. While they wait to profit, Person B invests. Ponzi uses B's money to pay off A. Person C invests. Person B decides to reinvest instead of withdrawing. So both B and C's money can be used to pay off other investors. Person D decides to invest when they see how well A, B, and C are doing. Ponzi strategically skims his own funds out of this as he goes. So much for the financial wizard. He served three and a half years being paroled only so he could face state fraud charges which landed him nine more years in prison. While on bail appealing the verdict, he disappeared heading to Florida and attempting to defraud people there, selling land under the pseudonym Shawpone. He was arrested and yet again convicted of fraud, but jumped bail when he heard that back in Massachusetts, he had lost his appeal. The Supreme Judicial Court had upheld his conviction. Naturally, Charles fled both sets of authorities, signing on to an Italian freighter as a seaman in Texas. He didn't make it very far, though, as he was apprehended in New Orleans and finally returned to prison to start his second sentence, not seeing the light of day again until 1934. He was deported soon after since he had never become an American citizen and, as such, was considered an undesirable alien, though Rose, his wife, oh yeah, remember her, initially planned to join him in Italy once he held down a job. She stopped waiting for him two years later and filed for divorce. Rose would long be suspected of playing a part in her husband's plans and having a hidden nest egg of the money she had stolen from hopeful investors, but this wasn't the case at all. She and her family had loaned Charles upwards of $16,000 that they never got back. And her life post Ponzi was quiet and strained, until she eventually remarried and moved to Florida to try and start afresh. And what of Charles? Well, according to Donald Dunn, a biographer of the schemer, Charles' cousin was a commander in the Italian Air Force, as well as a friend of Mussolini's, and got Charles a job with an airline that traded between Italy and Brazil. He stayed there until the airline went defunct during the Second World War, when the Brazilian government cut the airline off upon learning that, through them, they were unknowingly lending strategic aid to Italy. After this, Charles made use of his trilingualism, teaching English and French and working as an interpreter, until his sight began to fail him, and a stroke partially paralyzed him. Charles Ponzi died at the age of 66 on January 18, 1949, in a charity hospital in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. He had spent the rest of his life living in poverty and was buried in a pauper's grave. So, two centuries, two con artists, and millions and billions of dollars later, what is the moral of this story? Well, maybe it's just that. All things considered, it's always worth reminding ourselves that if something looks too good to be true, it probably, is. Okay, listeners, thank you for joining me in this episode as we file away another true crime case. If you like our podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcast or your podcast player of choice. It's a big help. You can follow us on social media. We're active on Twitter at truecrime_cases, underscore cases, facebook.com slash true cases w. Lainey, and Instagram at truecrime with laney. Our website is truecrimecasespodcast.com. And, of course, I'd love to hear your episode suggestions. We're kind of running dry over here. Send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com, if you'd like to reach out. This episode was research, written, and edited by the amazing and talented Jesse Hawk, with content editing by moi. Audio engineering provided by the best in the biz. Nix at WeTalkOfDreams. Check them out on Twitter at WeTalkOfDreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com.